I'd ask you to open your Bibles with me this morning. We are going to be in the New Testament book of Ephesians as we are continuing in a sermon series that's simply called Text Messages. And we've been looking at this, this book and we're going to study these text messages that the Apostle Paul has written to the church in Ephesus. Now, when Paul is writing this letter, he is actually in prison in the city of Rome. And he sent this letter by carrier to the city of Ephesus over a thousand miles away. And it gets to them and somebody would, would unroll this, this scroll and would, would read this message from Paul to the, the church. Normally our text messages can get anywhere that we send them pretty instantly, right? Imagine how long it takes by foot to, to take a text message a thousand miles. And then you have to have somebody read it there. And, and then what would happen is that text message, or that, that letter that Paul has written, it would be read to this church, and it may be rolled back up, almost like taking a screenshot, and then taken over to another church, and it would be read to them as well. So there's a lot of work that has gone into getting this letter and this message to this church. And it is so important what Paul is writing to this church and who he is writing to. And it's important for us to remember that it's not simply Paul's letter to a, a church. Paul is writing to you and I as well. It's the church of Ephesus, yes, and the churches around there, but it's through God's providence that we are recipients of this original message as well. And I, I want you to see, and, and why we, we know this and we see this and why we can apply this. We see Paul writes to one of his apprentices named Timothy in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, verse number 16. He writes this later in the Bible. He says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. All scripture and Paul is writing this, and that becomes scripture, so this is to us very important that we are able to use this scripture. You think about it. Paul wrote this in the year 60 AD. That's about 1960 years ago that he is pinning this letter from jail and these are God's words going on to paper, making it now to us. So as we, as we read through this book, I don't want you simply to look at the screen and read the, Paul, the, the words that Paul has written. No, I want you to listen to the words that God is speaking directly to you. These are God's words, God-breathed, useful to us. Through the Apostle Paul. We're going to start in Ephesians chapter 1. We are in verse number 15 this morning. Paul writes this. He's writing to the church in Ephesus. He says, ever since I heard of you and your strong, your strong faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people everywhere, I have not stopped think, uh, thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly. I'm going to stop right there for just a quick second. Paul begins many of his letters to churches in this same fashion. He starts out his letters with a, with a prayer. And, and mind you, from the time that Paul used to be in Ephesus, 
I think I'll, I'll back up. Paul started a church in Ephesus. He was there for three years. It's been some time since he has left, and now he's in prison in Rome. But there's been this area of time there, and now what we have seen is that the church that he left has grown because he continues to write them. He continues to, to be their pastor even from a long way away. And they have, they have grown not only as a church, but into their community. Paul is, is saying, he says, I can tell from, from the church there and the letters that you're writing back and forth to me that the congregation has grown and we haven't stopped praying for you. He says, now, Paul travels with an entourage. He really does. Everywhere he goes, he's got guys that are, that are with him. He says, we haven't stopped praying for you at all. And in verse 15, Paul, he's referring to your love for God's people everywhere. That's what he's talking to the church, saying we're so thankful for your love for not just your church, the people who are there in Ephesus, but we can tell that you have a love for God's people everywhere. Paul is saying that, that it's not simply you in Ephesus who are creating your own little God silo and, and you're just sticking amongst yourselves and learning and loving each other. He's saying, no, it's well known, your love for God and your love for other believers. And that's going to lead us to point number one in your notes this morning. If you are joining us for the first time, on the back of your bulletin, there's some fill in the blanks, and I'll, I'm going to give you those answers. They're going to be up on the big screen as well. But here's point number one in your notes this morning. When a church is dedicated to Jesus, other people know about it. It's pretty simple. When a church is dedicated to Jesus, other people know about it. It's just like how people in your life know and recognize that your life has been changed when you come to Jesus. You cannot keep Christ silent in your life. You cannot keep Christ silent in the church, amen? That's our job, is to make some Jesus noise in our community. That's what we do. Paul is thanking and he's praying thankfully for the church in Ephesus that they all recognize that other believers in other churches love the Lord as well. So we're going to pick this up. I'm in Ephesians chapter 1, verse number 17. Now, here's Paul. He writes this, asking God, he says, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you may grow in your knowledge of God. This is a little bit of an awkward break in verse 16 into verse 17, okay? So verse 17 actually is part of verse 16. Now, let me tell you just really quickly, in your Bible, the chapter names the chapter numbers and the verse numbers, these are not what we would call inspired words of God. They are references that were actually put in your Bible in the 14th and the 16th century, respectively, just so that we can kind of map some things out and we know where we're, when I say Ephesians 1:17, we all know where we're going. But verse 17 really flows from verse 16 really well. And Paul is saying that he prays constantly and in verse 17, asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight. 
That's what he's praying for. And there's a reason that Paul is praying and asking God for these blessings upon this church in Ephesus. He is praying this for his audience, which is them and us as well, that we will grow in our knowledge of God. That's why he's praying this. And I want you to see how the New International Version translates this, okay? I'm in the NIV, Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verse 17. It says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. We're going to sit right here for a quick minute on the word revelation. It's not a word that we use very much in our everyday life. Only maybe in biblical senses we, we really use it. But Paul is saying, he is asking that God give his original audience and to us through God's providence, wisdom and revelation. The word revelation, that trips us up sometimes. But let's talk about this for a second. The word revelation simply means to reveal, to make something known. But there's a very important aspect to revelation. Revelation, or to reveal something, especially about God, is something that God does. It is not something that you do. You do not revelation. You don't. That's what God does. When you learn something at school, we don't call it revelation. We call it learning. We call it something that you have studied, you learned. Revelation is different. Revelation is God taught. It's something that God has told you. Here's the second point in your notes this morning. Write this down, this is really important. Revelation is the activity of God, not the ability of man. It's not. Let me tell you something, if you know anything about God, it is not because you figured it out. It's not. God reveals himself. You don't initiate revelation. God reveals to us. That's where revelation comes from. It's God making himself known or making something about himself known to you. Paul is praying for God to give his his people wisdom and revelation to make himself known so that they can know him better. He's not praying that the people in Ephesus and the church simply tell themselves what they think God is like and claim, I had a revelation! No, that's not what Paul is praying for. God is praying that God reveal himself so that they know him better. God's revelation, the way he reveals himself, it's, it's, a, it's a language, it's a way that he tells you about him. We can't do that. This is God's language. Because, see, if you're being taught anything about God and it's not from God, Chances are you're listening to nonsense. Really is. Because what happens? If it's not coming from God, that means that it's coming from man, right? We're going to talk about that in just a second. But I want you to listen. 
What Paul talks to the, the church in Corinth, I'm in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse number 6, Paul's writing this, he says, Dear brothers and sisters, if I should come to you speaking in an unknown language, how would that help you? But if I bring you a revelation, see that, or a special knowledge or prophecy or teaching, that would be helpful. So he's saying, if, if I come to you, this is the Apostle Paul, he has met the risen Christ, okay? If I come to you, or if God gives you a, a revelation telling you something about God, about Jesus, the Son of God, that's going to be helpful. Anything else, it's nonsense. Paul is saying that talking about God without revelation from God about who God is, it's like speaking an unknown language. It's, it's really nonsense. If I were to come up here and preach this entire sermon in Swahili and nobody understood Swahili, it'd kind of be nonsense, right? Wouldn't make any sense to anyone or me either because I don't know how to speak Swahili. Know nothing about it. To tell you the truth, I couldn't even spell it if it wasn't for the pink line underneath it and I right-clicked and I had to go on spell check, right? So here's, here's the thing. God's language is so important because if, if you know anything about God, you think you know something about God, but it didn't come from God, it comes from man, wow. Now we've got to worry. Revelation is so important. We've even got a book in our Bible named after. It's the very last book in your Bible. You start scrolling to the back. Before you get to the book of maps, you'll find Revelation. It's like the very last book right there that's inspired by the Word of God. It's called Revelation. I want to read you from the very first verse. Revelation chapter 1, verse number 1. says this, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservant the things which must soon take place, and he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John. Did you see that? Who gave the revelation? God. God gave the revelation. This revelation is that he, God the Father, is giving about God the Son, Jesus Christ. He's giving it by use of an angel to John. It's all God's work. God is revealing himself. You figure things out on your own. We didn't... We didn't have a revelation. We just figured things out on our own. Um, brand new babies, at some point in the first few months, they learn how to say mama or, or, or dad. That's not a revelation. We're like, oh, my baby just started. It's a, it's a miracle. It's a no, that's what babies do. They learn how to say words. That's not a revelation. That's just growing up and, and learning things. Look what Paul writes to the church in Galatia. I'm in Galatians chapter 1, verse number 2. Paul writes this. He says, For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul is telling the church in Galatia, What I'm teaching you, I didn't learn from people. I didn't just make it up. No. I was told this. I was taught this by a revelation from Jesus Paul is saying what I learned about God the Father, what I learned about God the Son, what I learned about God the Holy Spirit is so, he's like, wow, this is so important. And I want you to know, but I also want you to know where I got this content from. See, we go back to the source. And Paul is saying, this is revealed, this is revelation from God. And he's saying, you're not going to learn about God 
from simply going out and finding any book at the library. He says, you're not going to learn, you're not learning from a coworker or YouTube or social media or a meme with Kermit the Frog drinking tea. That's not where you're learning about God. No, it's a revelation from God. In this case, the Apostle Paul, who was told a deeper understanding about God from Jesus Christ, this is revelation. Because here's Paul, a man, being taught by Jesus, God, about God. Yeah, Paul's being taught by revelation. Everything that Paul writes about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, it's not something that Paul made up. It's not. Something that was revealed to him. Revealed to him by God. And you know why that's so important? We were talking about this a minute ago. It's that because if, if what you know about God is only coming from what man, society, culture, pop culture, celebrity, media, social media, if, it has, if man has touched it, it is tainted. Anything that man touches is tainted by sin, right? But if it comes directly from God, it is only tainted by his holiness. That's it. Because words from God, they are undeniable. They are unalienable. They are uncorrectable. They are unfathomable. God's word is unobtainable through any other means other than revelation directly from God. We don't get to make up what we think that God should be like. We don't get to make up what we think that God should be doing. We don't get to make up how we think that God should be treating us. We don't get to make up how God is just or not just or should be loving. We don't get to define God's terms like love. We don't get to. That is God's rule. That is God's world. He gets to reveal it to us. We don't get to reveal anything to God. He already knows it. Amen? Let's pick up the action. We are in Ephesians chapter 1. I'm in verse number 18. Paul writes this. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Hang with me a second. That's some pretty big stuff right there. Let's tear this up a little bit and see what's here. Paul is talking about two specific parts of the body. He's talking about your eyes and your heart. And he's actually saying that your heart has eyes. He wants the eyes of your heart to be enlightened. Think about that for a minute. If your heart has eyes, and the Bible says that it does, this is God's word breathed into existence for us, so it, it, is, it is true, the, your heart has eyes. Let me ask you this, if your heart has eyes, what does your heart see right now? What is your heart looking at? What does your heart see? All throughout the Bible, we see that, that humans were born with a sin nature. That's part of who we are. 
It's built into us. That's what is fighting against us. Jeremiah the prophet put it like this. He writes this in Jeremiah 17, verse number 9. He says, the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? It's a long way from good, right? Our heart our, in our natural state. Wouldn't it be fair to say that if by nature our heart is desperately wicked, that the eyes of our heart yearn to see sin, that our, the eyes of our heart enjoy seeing sin are, and are surprisingly comfortable living around sin, wouldn't it be wise for somebody to be praying for us that the eyes of our heart be enlightened? Man, I'm so thankful somebody like Paul is praying for us knowing that our heart is by nature wicked and what it is that our the eyes of our heart are comfortable seeing is sin paul's praying the eyes of our heart to be enlightened let me tell you about something that is enlightened and write this down this is important too point number three in your notes is this something that has been enlightened was formerly darker than it is now He's praying for our hearts to be enlightened. So he is stating, says, God, I'm praying for my audience reading this, and I'm praying that you enlighten their hearts. He really wouldn't be praying that prayer if he felt that our hearts were enlightened enough, right? If he felt there was no darkness in our heart, why would you pray for enlightenment in a heart that is already full of light? He's like, no, I'm praying that these hearts are to be enlightened so they can see you more, so they can see and hear your revelation of yourself. Paul is praying that God will bring light into not only a dark world, but into our very dark hearts. You see, there's one thing that darkness can't stand. Can't stand the light. Certainly can't stand the light. And you see that every day in your life. You see as you go out with your Bible how, how people will scurry away from you, right? You know what that is? That is darkness trying to get away from the light. Sometimes that can be us, right? When we know God is there, when, we, when, when, when it's that, that tug at our heart, that guilt at our heart, and, and we're fighting that. You know what it is? That is darkness fighting light. And it happens because naturally we are born in darkness. Unfortunately, we're pretty comfortable there, right? The light shows up. Sometimes we want to scurry too. But Paul is praying to God just enlighten their hearts. And why though? Why is it? That he wants our hearts enlightened. Well, because he wants you to see the hope that you were called to. Okay, we're going to talk about that. I want to dive into that. We have hope in our salvation, right? We have hope. 
But let's unpack hope a little bit more. Come with me to uh, Romans. I'm in chapter 8, verse number 24 and 25. Paul writes this to the church in Rome. He says, for it is this hope we were saved. But hope, pay attention to this, but hope that has been seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Hope is something that is coming. It's something that is on its way. You don't have all of the inheritance of our salvation right now. And then we can all be thankful for that. The Old Testament links the word hope to the idea of putting confidence in something. It links hope with taking refuge in something. It links hope. Paul will link hope with something that we trust in. There is where our hope is. Paul is praying that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened so that you can know the hope, know what it is that you're putting confidence in. How do we know? We're putting confidence in God. How do we know who God is and what God does? We know through God's revelation, not through our worldly learning. No, but he wants us, Paul wants our hope, us to understand our hope. That's what we put confidence in. That's what we trust in. Here's something else amazing that we hope for. John writes about this in 1 John. I'm in 1 John chapter 3, verse number 2. We read this. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what, will be, what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. If you are a believer in Christ, you are a child of God. And we should be so thankful that there is more to our salvation and more to our faith than we currently see, than we currently recognize. The cool thing that John tells us is that he says when Jesus comes back, we're going to see him exactly how he is, and we are going to be like he is. Now, he's not talking about us being God. He's not saying that. He's saying that Jesus is going to come with a glorified body. And now, it's our turn. It's your turn. Glorified body? Wow, wouldn't that be nice? No more bad back. No more sore knees. No more bad eyesight. Did I hear an amen over here? Yeah, I did, right? No more breathing problems. No more doctor's appointments. You got a glorified body. Woo, that's something to look forward to, right? That's going to be amazing. Your body at its best has never, ever been glorified. You know how your body will be glorified? Well, it'll be glorified by God because God can make that happen. God can do that because He's powerful enough to do that. I'll tell you what, there's no gym membership in the world that is powerful enough to give you a glorified body. Doesn't matter what doctor you go to, how far you drive, where you go, NASA can't give you a glorified body. Can't. Might make you weightless, which sounds glorified, but no, not glorified. Only God can do that. Come with me. I'm in Ephesians chapter 1, verse number 19. 
Paul says this, I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Now he is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. You want to talk about power. God having the power to glorify a body, but this is so amazing. Paul states in verse number 20 how powerful God is. And here's this, this three-prong notice that Paul puts in here talking about God's power. First thing he says is God is so powerful that he raised Christ from the dead. Now we hear about that in our church world. We've heard about that our entire life and sometimes we don't really think about how powerful that is. I have never seen anyone, I've never been to a funeral and seen somebody in the casket and then the next day saw them at Stater Brothers. Never. I've never seen that happen. Man can't do that. God can do that. I don't know anyone here who could raise anyone from the dead, but I can tell you there's a lot of people here, myself included. We struggle to raise ourselves even out of bed in the morning, right? And if that's a struggle of ours, it's to show us how powerful God is. And after God raises Jesus from the dead, he gives Jesus, the Son of God, he gives, us, he gives him a place right next to God the Father. Powerful? I think so. There is not a king on earth, not a president on earth, not a pharaoh on earth, who could give anyone a seat right next to God the Father. Now, if you want to know how powerful that is for God the Father to give God the Son a seat, the most important seat in all of eternity, just think about the last time you had yourself some concert tickets, okay? And then what happens is a few days later, the kids call and they say, hey, I want to go. You call Ticketmaster to see if you can get a seat next to you, right? You try doing that. Ticketmaster can't even get you a seat next to your kids at a show afterwards. Here's God giving Jesus the most powerful seat right next to him. That is an amazing amount of power. And Paul goes on a step further. And he says, God has put everything under his feet, under the feet of Jesus Christ. Now, if you remember, God has a plan, and we've talked about that in the last couple of weeks. God's plan is to bring everything together. At the end of time, everything comes together under Christ, under the banner of Jesus. This is, we're looking at after, after time has run its course, we have, had, we have had a millennial kingdom. We have had Christ's reign. We are bringing everything together under the banner of Christ. And God has done this on purpose to put Christ in charge of everything. Why did God put Christ in charge of everything? 
so early. Seems to us like this was early. Well, he did this. This was the plan before there was a plan, before time existed, before the world existed. Paul tells us why Christ has this authoritative position, why he has this power, and why is he is in this lead position, why it is to benefit the church. And Paul says this, he says, remember, you are all God's children. God wants to spend eternity with his children. And if the church is where God's children are, and if Christ is the head of the church, then God can make this happen. Because Christ, with all of his power, can make this happen. I want you to think what would happen if you or I were the head over the church. Or man in general, any man, or any group of men. What would happen? Well, remember, anything that man touches is tainted by sin, right? And as soon as you touch anything that God has created, now you have tainted something with sin. The church belongs to Jesus. It is his church. Now, that doesn't mean that the church is pure. The church is made up of people. We're not pure. But the head of the church is pure and free of sin. That means that as people, if Jesus is the head of the church and we are part of the church, our job is to follow, right? Our job isn't to lead. Our job is to follow. Let me wrap this up. I'm in Ephesians chapter 1, verse number 23. Paul writes this. He says, and the church is his body, Christ's body, okay? It is made full and complete by Christ, who fills all things everywhere with himself. Christ is the head of the church. The church is the body of Christ. We've seen this analogy in in many other places. Paul talks about this in other letters as well. We are not the head of the church. We are the body of the church. Christ is the head of the church. He is put there on purpose. It's God's power that has put him there. And this is so important. This is the fourth and final point in your notes this morning. It is the parts of the body that are to complete the desires of the head. It is the parts of the body that are there to work out the wishes and the direction of the head. Look at your own body. What is it that your hands do? Well, your hands do what your head tells them to do, right? Look at your own body. Where do your feet go? Well, your feet go where your head tells them to go. Until they don't. Until they fight back and they say, head, I know you're telling me to go someplace, but I don't want to go there. And you know what happens in the church world? If the feet don't want to move, the head is saying, feet move. The feet are saying, no, I'm not moving. You know what happens? The church doesn't move. But the head still says, we need to move. What happens when your mind has more strength than your feet do? Well, it means that you're thinking about going somewhere, but you're not going anywhere. 
Because maybe your feet are tired. Maybe your feet are just lazy. Maybe they say, I'm too sore to move, mind. Well, no, your head's telling you. God is telling us, Jesus is telling us to do something, right? But when your feet stay still because they say they're tired and they're telling the mind that I don't want to move, that could happen in the church as well. It can. The mind doesn't do the work. The head doesn't do the work. The head, the central system, tells the body what needs to be done, and the body is to do the work. It is the body is there to take the direction from the head and to do the work. Isn't it a good thing that we're not the head? Imagine how bad we would mess things up. We would, wouldn't we? It, it, if somebody is the hand of compassion and the head says, go and be compassionate, but the hand of compassion says, you know what, I'm kind of tired. I don't really feel like it today. <sighs> you know, then what happens? Then there is no compassion that has been given out. And you know what? Your, the hands are representative of Christ. So what do people see? People see the hands of Christ are saying, no, I don't want to move. I don't want to. Right? And they just aren't moving. They aren't doing anything. Let me ask you this. What, what would happen if the mouth told the brain what it wanted to eat? Ooh, we'd all be about 700 pounds by now, wouldn't we? We would all be really... What if... What if the feet told the mind where the feet wanted to go? Chances are we would all be in some place that we shouldn't be right now. Because remember, sin nature right here, right? If our feet are calling the shot, if we as the body are calling the shots, we're going to end up in the wrong spot. We're going to be lost because the feet don't have any eyes. I don't have any eyes. What if the eyes told the brain or the lead what they wanted to see? Well, chances are we would be looking at something that we shouldn't be. Right? What if a heart told the head what it wanted to love because it feels good? Chances are we're in the wrong spot. Because you've got a part of the body that is telling the head what it wants to do. But see, here's the thing. There's no part of the body that it is a decision maker. We are followers of Christ, right? We're not deciders of Christ. We don't call the shots. A church and a body, we follow the lead. What if, let me ask you this, what if ears told the head what they wanted to hear. That would be like people telling Jesus what they wanted to hear about Jesus and what they didn't want to hear about Jesus, right? Paul even warns us about that. And I'm going to wrap up here in 2 Timothy, verse number 4. Chapter 4, verse number 3, Paul actually writes about this. Ears telling the head what they want to hear. Paul writes this, for the time will come when people do not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, 
to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers who say what their itching ears want to hear. Wow. Ears, you want to be in control? It's not what you're made for. You weren't made to be in control. But this is what happens when ears are in control and are in telling the lead, telling the head, I'm just going to listen to what I want to listen to. There's people out there that will tell you that. You tell people what you want to hear, I promise you you're going to find a YouTube channel that will tell you whatever you want to hear. promise you there's a podcast for that. There is. Here's the neat thing about it, though. There's a book in your hands that has never changed. It's actually not going to change. There is a truth that does not change. The most popular podcasts, that changes every other week or so, depending on what society thinks is the coolest fad, whatever is in at this time. You know why the, the Bible doesn't change? Because the Bible is never out. It's not. Christ is always the head. He is always the lead, the head of the church. Ephesians is such a powerful text message. It's not only the salvation story here in the, in the New Testament. It's a message for non-believers and a message for believers. It's a reminder that you are not alone. That you are here on purpose. That you are part of God's plan. That you are who God made you, not who you think you want to be. God is in charge. It is this message that there is somewhere to put your faith. That there is something much more powerful than you are. And for that, we can all be thankful. Because... We don't have to rely on ourselves because we're not the head. If we have found ourselves in a position where we are trying to take charge, then what we're doing is with our darkness, we're fighting the light. That's what Paul is praying for, is that uh, the eyes of our hearts to be enlightened. You know the only way that our hearts can be enlightened? It's when darkness leaves. And sometimes we control that darkness, right? Sometimes we need to open up a window or a door in our heart to let the darkness out so that we can let that light in. It's purposeful. It's something that we can initiate. We don't get to reveal to ourselves how we think God should be, but we can make room in our heart for God. But in order to do that, that means that we need to get some other things out. Will you pray with me this morning?